1: Nehemiah chapter number 4. Let's begin reading in verse number 1, and we'll read down through verse number 4. Let me read you a verse of Scripture, or two first from chapter number 2. You can look there with me if you'd like. Nehemiah chapter number 2 and verse number 10. The Bible said, When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, heard of it, look, look at the response, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. Now verse number 19 In verse number 19, this just comes right after the declaration of Nehemiah that God's hand was on his life and the determination of the people that they would join with Nehemiah and rise up and build. Now, you'd think everybody would be excited about that, but that's just not the case. Verse number 19, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite and Gesheb the Arabian heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us. and said, What is this thing that you do? Will you rebel against the king? Now look with me in Nehemiah chapter number 4 and verse number 1. We're going to think about these individuals tonight. The Bible said, But it came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we builded the wall, he was wroth and took great indignation and mocked the Jews. And he spake before his brethren and the army of Samaria. By the way, it's amazing how these kind of people gravitate toward one another. It kind of happens like that at youth camps as well. It's amazing how rebels have this radar and they can be from different churches, different states, different sides of the country. And within an hour, they find themselves on that first day of youth camp. Well, the same thing happens in churches. And the same thing happens out in society. These kind of people just sort of gravitate toward each other. There's a crowd together. says his brethren, the army of Samaria, and said, What do these feeble Jews... Now watch this. He'll ask five different questions. Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? I'll preach on this in a moment, but the mode of operation of a critic is a critic often becomes a questioner. And I don't have problems with anybody who questions things if they're questioning in sincerity. But I'll tell you what you have to have is spiritual discernment to understand, is this question for information or confrontation? Is this question for information or is it instigation? And this man is questioning with an insincere motive so that he can mock the work of God. Verse three, now Tobiah the Ammonite was by him and he said, even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall even break down, look what he says, their stone wall. I'm not gonna preach on that word, but I circle that word there and here's the problem, Tobiah is saying it's their wall. It's not their wall at all. It's God's wall. He's not attacking Nehemiah's work. He's attacking God's work. It's not Nehemiah's purpose. That is the will of God being accomplished. That's what they're attacking. In this passage we have Sanballat. We have this man named Tobiah. We have a crowd. There's a man named Geshem in in chapter 2. And they are anti the work of God. And I know that might surprise you but there are people both without and within No matter what the job is, the work is, they're going to be anti or against whatever God's trying to do. They're scorners. They're critics. They're those that are antagonizers. They're enemies of the work of God. Tobiah makes a statement that he thought was clever. Obviously, he wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed, if that's the best he could come up with. But here's what he said. He said, you see that wall Nehemiah's building, this wall that's halfway erected all the way around the city? He said, that work is so feeble, that work is so uh, 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 frail, that if a fox, something as small and nimble as a fox, were to jump on that stone wall, that stone wall would just come tumbling down. He's trying to take a shot. Now tonight I want to preach on this thought. Sticks and stones. You remember that poem we used to hear when we were kids? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I want to preach on this thought. Sticks and stones are just part of wall building. They're just part of it. I was preaching in Chattanooga, Tennessee a month ago and a preacher, we wouldn't know if I named his name, but a preacher came to me on the platform and he said, I want you to tell your pastor that I pray for him. He wouldn't know me from anybody. And I already told pastor, he said this, he said, I believe he might be the most criticized preacher in America. But you know why that is? You can't have Acts power and not expect Acts persecution. If God's going to do a work, the devil's going to rise up against it. Satan has always had a people that will rise up and try to attack a people that has a desire to do a work for God. And today, I believe that is even more amplified than ever. And the reason that is amplified is because we have this ability to do it with anonymity and no accountability. Because we can do it from the safe haven of a shadowy basement with a Wi-Fi connection. And I don't want to discourage you, but somebody literally can look you in the eyeball at church, smile, shake your hand, say, I love you, brother. And by the time the sun sets in the evening, they could have absolutely cut you to pieces on the Internet. Just happens. Charles Spurgeon had a publication called The Sword and the Trowel. And he took that from Nehemiah, of course, the trowel for building, but he also knew the sword for battling. For a little while tonight, I want to preach on that thought. Sticks and stones are just part of it, just part of wall building. Let's pray. Lord, I pray you'd help our church tonight. I pray you'd help us to understand that there's going to be attack, there's going to be opposition. But that doesn't mean we change, and that doesn't mean that we're not right. That means that you're doing something. And I pray we'd just be like Nehemiah and resolve and say, so we built the wall. Just build on In Jesus' name, amen. Winston Churchill made the statement. He said, you have enemies? Good. That means you've stood up for something at some point in your life. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, then they're going to persecute you. And Nehemiah was a blessed man. I say he was blessed because there's no greater blessing that can be bestowed upon a person's life than to be entrusted by God to do a great work for him. Noah was a blessed man. He had the opportunity to build an ark. Moses was a blessed man. He was given the opportunity to lead God's people. Paul was a blessed man. He got to carry the gospel to the Gentile world. And on the same note, no doubt about it, Nehemiah is a blessed man. Now, Nehemiah's job wouldn't appeal to someone who's lazy or someone who's a coward. His job was hard work. And his work required strength and his work required conviction. Nehemiah would be called to rally the remnant, to join together and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Now that would be a totally overwhelming undertaking for Nehemiah. But Nehemiah had faith in God. And that faith in God enabled Nehemiah to have enough vision to see that that rubble could be revived and the walls could be rebuilt. And God put it on his heart to rebuild the walls and rebuild the walls he would. Now you would think that everybody would love Nehemiah. I mean, how could you not love a man that was not living for self, but was living for others? How could you not love a man that wanted to seek the welfare of his nation? How could you not be for a man that wanted to bring revival to that which was a reproach? You would think Nehemiah would get the key to the city. He'd have much fanfare, but you study his life and find out that just wasn't the case. I remember being taught that little verse, probably kindergarten, maybe before that. And it says, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Well, tonight I want you to think with me on that thought. Sticks and stones are just part of wall building. I read a quote that said, for every action, there's an equal and opposite criticism. The Apostle Paul wrote about the opposition he faced in his own ministry. And he referred to his opposition as called as being called cruel mockings. Now, I don't believe the Holy Spirit just had Paul pin that word cruel as filler for the page of your Bible. I believe what Paul endured was cruel on every account. Now, who wouldn't love the Apostle Paul? Paul was a man whose life had been changed by the grace of God. Paul wasn't a hard man. Paul was a compassionate man. Paul wasn't a man that'd be hard to get along with. He went about weeping over souls and loving people and establishing churches. He tried to bring good everywhere he went. But you study out Paul's life. Paul didn't have a short list. He had a very lengthy list of what we would say were enemies to his ministry. Now tonight, there's hardly anything as damaging or mocking as scorning, as damaging as mocking or scorning. Verbal sticks and stones, no doubt about it, do cause hurt. One of the worst enemies to the Christian life is that little member of the body that seems to be the last to get any spirituality, and it's that little member called the tongue. Mockings may not cut the flesh, but they do tear at the heart. Mockings may not shed blood, but they cause the mind to ache. The Bible said a wounded spirit who can bear. I think we could say it more truthfully. Sticks and stones may break my bones, and words often do hurt me. Someone said ridicule is a poison bullet that goes deeper than the flesh, and it strikes the center of the heart. You study your Bible and find the way that Bible personalities were scorned by their generation. The apostle Paul was called insane. He stood before a civic leader and that man said, Paul, much learning doth make thee mad. Thou art beside thyself. He looks at Paul and calls Paul a crazy man. There was a day some other disciples were worshiping God. They were filled with the Spirit. And those that saw them worshiping God did not say, Wow, they're worshiping God. Look how spiritual they are. They say, Those men must be drunk as a skunk, as we heard on Sunday. Jesus himself cast out devils, and the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they looked at Jesus and said, this man cast out devils by the devil himself. He is the Beelzebub. He is the devil. Can you imagine that? And this might be news, but as long as there's been Christian people on this planet, they have not been very popular with the world. Now we're called tonight to live by faith, and living by faith is what pleases God. In fact, in Hebrews 11, we find a long list of what we call heroes of the faith. And they're heroes because those individuals lived and died in faith. And faith is pleasing to God. But you need to understand, there is nothing more reviled and despised by this world than a person, a man or woman, who has the audacity to live a life of faith in Jehovah God. Now, I'm not talking about generic faith like is prostituted by politicians and promoted by celebrities, but I'm talking about somebody who believes the Bible and lives their life according to faith in God, the world always has and always will despise the person of faith. The world mocks a person who has enough faith to believe that God created everything that is. They would look at us and say how uneducated and how ignorant you must be to think this thing started with a big God and not a big bang, not a big boom, not a big catastrophic event, but a big God spoke and there it was. You must be unlearned. You must be ignorant. And so they ridicule and they scorn because we have faith in creation. They'll ridicule and scorn because we have faith in the inspiration and preservation of the Bible. That's not just from without, that's from within. I can't believe how ignorant that is. You believe God has enough power to inspire and then preserve his inspired word. That's not very scholarly. That's not very uh, educated. And so they mock us. They mock us for believing in a place called hell. And by the way, I believe there is a place called hell. I believe there's a hell that burns with fire and brimstone and is never quenched, and I believe anyone who dies without Jesus that they're going to go to that place called hell. But they do documentaries on hell and they try to explain it away and philosophize it away and they say you're ignorant and unlearned and they mock us and scorn us because we believe the Bible and what it says about hell. They mock us about personal standards. They would mock a man who wants to look like a man and a lady that wants to dress like a lady. They would mock us for trying to be ye holy because our God is holy and they want us to come down off of that wall of separation and standards and be carnal like they are. And when you don't, they're going to tweet about it, they're going to blog about it, and they're going to scorn and they're going to mock. That's just how it is. The world mocks us for not advocating for abortion. The world mocks us for not parading with the Sodomites. The world mocks us for saying that Jesus is not a way, but he's the only way to heaven. That should not be news to you and I. Nero lit up the streets of Rome by burning Christians at the stake. And can I say, our world today is no more Jesus friendly now than it was back then. So it goes without saying, if you live any kind of a life at all that exhibits a measure of faith, you are going to have some persecution, you're gonna have some opposition, you're gonna have some sticks and stones hurled your way for trying to do a work for God. B.R. Lakin made the statement, if you want everyone to like you, then don't have nothing, don't know nothing, and don't do nothing. He said, be just as sorry as everyone else, and they'll all love you. I don't know about you, but I don't plan on that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to fit that definition, and I don't think you do either. So you've got to understand, if you set out by faith to live for God, you're going to have to deal with sticks and stones in wall building. Now as we come to Nehemiah chapter 4, We come to the scene of a building project that is underway and halfway completed. For so long, those walls of Jerusalem had light in heaps around the city, but now those walls are beginning to rise up into the sky. Much work has been done, and there's yet much work to do. Hammers have been ringing out, saws have been growling, boards have been nailed into place, and stones have been stacked one upon another. All around the city, there's a buzz of rebuilding In the air. What a sweet sound that is, by the way. I don't believe there's any sweeter sound to the ears of God than the buzz of building and rebuilding going on at the house of God. There's no sweeter sound than the sound of the buses running. There's no sweeter sound than the sound of the baptistry being stirred. There's no sweeter sound than the sound of the choir singing. There's no sweeter sound than the sound of a sinner praying the sinner's prayer. There's no sweeter sound than the sound of somebody saying, Amen. There's no sweeter sound than the sound of folks rejoicing in the Lord. The buzz of rebuilding just cannot be beat. And can you see it in your mind as those various crews are working on their assigned section of the wall? This family here, those people there, the priest over here, and now the walls of Jerusalem, not in sections, but simultaneously are rising up around the city. That creates a perfect storm for Satan to step in and trouble the situation. When you have a unified people that have a desire to work and God is blessing, you better believe the devil is going to rise up and try to thwart the work of God. Anywhere God is moving, anywhere God is blessing, anywhere the hand of God is falling, the devil's going to attack that place. Now, in chapter four, we're reintroduced to a man that first slithered on the scene of the Bible in chapter number two. In chapter number four, we find this man by the name of Sanbalat, and he begins to mock the work of the wall. This man is the enemy of God. He's the antagonizer of the man of God. He's a tool in the hand of the devil to keep the people of God from doing a great work. Now, that might surprise you. But can I say, that kind of individual did not die out when Sanballat bit the dust. But those kind of people are still alive in 2021. Some of them even claim to be halfway spiritual. But they live for nothing more than to try and throw a wrench in the work that God is doing in this generation. Sanballat is that kind of a man. He is a no-good man who is up to no good. In chapter number two, the Bible said that Sanballat and his buddy Tobiah and a man named Geshem heard that Nehemiah had come back to seek the welfare of the people of God. They began to laugh at that. They began to mock that. They began to scorn the thought of that. How dare Nehemiah have faith like that? How dare Nehemiah have a zeal like that? How dare Nehemiah want to serve God like that? And they began to mock him because he sought the welfare of the people of God. I don't know of anybody so low down and sorry as somebody like that that would have a problem with a person that wanted to live for God. I don't know anybody so sorry as someone who'd have a problem with somebody wanting to do a work for God in our generation. I don't know anybody so sorry that would attack a man of God, leading the people of God to a work of God that'll benefit a nation, but that's who they were. And can I say, if that's you, I want you to stay away from me. You're more, you're, you got more problems than COVID. I'd much rather have COVID and swine flu and Ebola and chicken pox and gingivitis. And arthritis and whatever else, then I would have your bad critical spirit. I'll never understand somebody who's anti everything that God is for. Can you? I'm about to preach in a minute. You in a minute, I'm gonna. I have a list of actual names. I'll read off in just a minute. Picture those three people. There's Sanballat, there's Tobiah, and there's Geshem. They're all standing in a circle. By the way, you can always find that crowd. That's what they do. They always meet together, whether it's at their house, whether it's through their group text or whether it's under a tent after the service is over. There they are standing together. And they begin to cast their judgment at Nehemiah. They can't stand the fact that man wants to live for God. They can't stand the fact that man's not bitter about his life. They can't stand the fact that he has a vision to do a work in his generation. So they stand there and they shake their heads in indignation. They're disgusted and they open their mouth and begin to mock everyone involved in the work of God. Can you see them? They're on the peripheral. They're close enough to get in on the gossip, but not close enough to get anything from God. They're around it, but they sure aren't in it. They begin murmuring among themselves. They slight Nehemiah's ability. They doubt Nehemiah's skill. They make fun of the fact he's a common man. And he's undertaking a great task. They look down on the remnant and they look down on Nehemiah. And let me just insert in parentheses, that is the sin of pride and that is the root of all of this. They bounce their opinions off each other. They wouldn't dare go to someone that would have a differing opinion. They bounce opinions off one another. Back and forth they go. They take their turns, taking their cheap shots at the man of God. From one to the next, and then on to the next, back and forth with their bitter opinions. First, Sam Ballot takes his shot. He makes a statement. All of a sudden, his buddies say amen. Then comes Tobiah, and amens ring out again. Then Gisham gets in on it, and that little crowd of critics pat each other on the back, hug each other's neck, and sign each other's Bible. They go to the their computer and retweet each other and then take turns hitting the like button on each other's post in the little echo chamber of vitriol against the will of God. I don't doubt it. I mean, if that crowd was here today, they'd start their own club, their own organization, and they just sit around, I mean, at their own pity party, eating their bitter piece of birthday cake, and it's taught how bad God is, how bad the man of God is, and how off-base the local church is. First-hand ballot, then Tobiah, then Gisham, and let me say, that's always been how the devil operates, and that is still how the devil operates today. The devil does not like God. The devil doesn't like the local church. The devil doesn't like your Bible. The devil doesn't like your preacher. The devil doesn't like you if you serve God, and he's gonna attack in that same fashion today. Opposition is the devil's first response to anyone that sets out to do a work for God. Now, opposition means this, the action of opposing resisting or combating or antagonizing. And then it went on to say a person or a group of people that criticize or protest something. I found it interesting that the very definition in a secular dictionary goes from just words defining what opposition means to going ahead and saying it's usually a group of people. Well, if ever a group of people fit that definition, it's these people. They deserve to have their bus put in the opposition hall of shame. Now you study what the devil does. When God raises up a people to do a great work, the devil's gonna raise up people to criticize it. The devil himself started that trend in the Garden of Eden. When God had created a perfect place and put two perfect people together in that place, no sooner had they gotten in Eden than the devil came and cast doubt on what God was doing in the life of Eve. And he's kept it up ever since. Think about Pharaoh, he was an opposer. Think about Simon the sorcerer, he was an opposer. Think about Shimei, he was an opposer. Think about Korah, he was an opposer. Think about Judas, he was an opposer. Think about Jezebel, she, Hillary, Jezebel, she was an opposer. They were all the false prophets. They were opposers. Think about Demas. He was an opposer. Think about Alexander the coppersmith. And Dr. Tom Malone said, Paul put his a vocation on there. He said, there might have been another Alexander in town. And he said, Paul wanted to make sure they knew exactly which one that rotten fellow was. So he said, he's not just Alexander. He's the one that works down at the coppersmith shop. He's an opposer. The Pharisees were an opposer. Iodius and Synthesis, opposers. Diotrephes and so many others, opposers. They were mockers and scorners and discouragers and dividers and opposers. The Bible says these are lewd men and often women of the baser sort. They're wrapped up in their flesh and they're led of the devil. They're proverbial blankets. They're a thorn in the saddle. They're a rock in the shoe. They're nothing but antagonizers and annoyers to the work of God. They have nothing. They know nothing. nothing and they wish you'd be just as sorry as they are. Proverbs 21, 24 says, proud and haughty scorner is his name who deals in proud wrath. Proverbs 24, 9, and the scorner is an abomination to men. Proverbs 22, 10, cast out the scorner and contention shall go out. Yea, strife and reproach shall cease. There has always been a crowd that goes on a conversation campaign when God tries to work They run their mouth, but they'd never work with their hands. They'll gossip and whisper, and they'll post and proclaim. They'll sneer and smear and shoot sarcasm, but they'd never serve God. That's just what the devil does. He taunts. He threatens. He attacks. Charles Spurgeon said the blade of scorn is the quickest to forge and the easiest to yield. Now, it's interesting to note the course of action that they take in chapter 4 and verse number 2. They start by mocking and slandering. And then that leads to questioning. Sandballot begins to ask these insincere questions about Nehemiah's motives, about their ability, and about their purpose. I want you to understand this. You need to understand how to discern if somebody's asking a question for information or if they're asking a question just for confrontation. I'm not against questions, but I am against some of these questioners. And you can say amen right there. Paul said, avoid foolish questions which do gender strife to Timothy. And then he said it again to Titus, another young preacher, avoid foolish questions. And these endless things about genealogies, he said, they're not looking for answers, they're looking for debate. You look what Sanballat did. He began to question. And look how he questions. Number one, he questions Nehemiah's intellect. They're just not very smart. They're feeble Jews. Then he questioned their motive. What's the purpose of what they're doing? Then they questioned their God. Uh, They questioned God and their deity. Then he questions Nehemiah's sincerity. And then finally questions Nehemiah's ability. One of the favorite songs of a scorner is that song of why, what, how come, and will. They love to see a course of questions about anything and everything that God is wanting to do through his people at the local church. He asks, what are they doing? He says, why are they doing it? Why are they doing it that way? And he casts his doubt and offers his criticism and gives these foolish questions over and over and over again. He said they're misguided. He said they're uneducated. He said they're not able to do this great work. He says, what are they doing? Why are they doing it? Why? 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 Wicked question. After wicked question, Can I say that is a trend in our generation. I mean, nobody anymore the word of God's not good enough. Pastoral authority's not good enough. Everything's a why. Everything's a what? Everything's a how come? Everything's, if it's not broke, let's break it and then get something new. Can I say that is anti-God. That is anti- Bible. That is anti-Christ. You don't find that. Paul said, be your followers of me as you have us for an example. We're supposed to continue thou in the things which thou hast learned. But you better believe it. Stick and stones come whenever you try to build a wall for God and it comes to these scorners, these mockers, and these foolish questioners. What's mind-blowing to me is, at the center of this negative storm, there's still a man and a crowd that just want to serve God. It's crazy to me. As if it wasn't hard enough to carry these stones. As if it wasn't hard enough to carry these logs. As if it it wasn't hard enough to keep the remnant together and remove the rubbish, there has to be a crowd of adversaries circling the sky like buzzards, intimidating and mocking and laughing and scorning the work of the wall. Then you come down to chapter three, or rather chapter four, verse three, and Tobiah makes his statement. Now, as far as I can tell, Tobiah has not done very much anything in his life other than mock a man of God. He hadn't built any city walls. He's not ever cut a, a piece of lumber as far as I can tell. I mean, you know, if you want me to do go verse by verse, I don't find that in verse by verse. He's not carried a stone. All I can find on his resume is he's a scorner. He probably hadn't built a bus route, a birdhouse, or anything else. Tobiah opens his mouth and begins to mock the building process. He said in verse 3, Even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall even break down Their stone wall. Basically saying that wall wall is so weak, if something so small as a fox, not even weighing 20 pounds, were to jump on those stones weighing several tons, that fox would knock down those walls. I can see Tobiah step back, man. He probably like a peacock, you know. Take, I'm I'm following that message on Sunday. Like a he probably takes his his lapels and puffs them out like that, and he thought he's pretty smart. Can I say he's not the sharpest tool in the tool shed, If he thinks that's a good comeback, I mean, he's definitely a tool, just not a very sharp one. And, and here's Tobiah making his statement, and I can see as they condescend and, and they're like adolescents on the playground, they begin to laugh at what he said. They're almost like the kids that say, my, "My my my kickball team's gonna win." No, my kick- Kickball teams, that's kind of the level that these guys are living at. He's throwing these sticks and stones at the man of God. Sanballat joins in, Geshem joins in, the army of Samaria, they all join in. I read a quote that says, criticism is work for a second-rate mind. Well, here you find a first-class meeting of a bunch of second-rate minds. If you continue on through the chapter and you go all the way into chapter number six, It's amazing the length that these people go to try to stop the work. They go from just laughing and mocking and scorning to literally planning a plot to infiltrate and kill Nehemiah. That's a stark warning to us tonight that our adversary is a roaring lion. And he is not playing just for pride, but he is playing for keeps. He is in the devouring business. And he is doing all that he can to try and take down the work of God. There's been a sand ballot in every generation. There's been a Tobiah in every age. There's been a a Geshem in every single era. Every time a man of God and a church of God say, let us rise up and build, there'll be a crowd that says, well, let us rise up and scorn. Let us rise up and mock. Let us rise up and try to keep them from getting the will of God done. There's one in every town. There's one in every city. There's one in every state. There's one in every family. There's one in every church. They are scorners and they are critics to what God is trying to do. But here, let me apply it and we'll be through. Let me apply it. The Bible says, "Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you." Jesus said, "Yea, and all who will live godly in Christ." Or the Bible said, "Yea, and all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution." And tonight, the message is this: You've got to go ahead and understand that whenever God is blessing a place, and we endeavor to do something that only God can do through us by faith, that we are not going to get a parade of roses from this world. We're not going to have a long list of people wanting to congratulate us for living for Jesus Christ. The devil does not attack a dead church, but he sure will battle against a living church. The devil doesn't battle a church that doesn't believe the Bible. The devil doesn't fight a church that isn't winning souls. The devil's not against a church that doesn't take a stand, but you let a church take a stand. You let a church preach the gospel. You let a church have a vision and you better believe the devil is going to rise up and fight against that church. Lester Wolf used to sing the song, it's a battlefield, brother, not a recreation room. It's a fight and not a game. I say woe unto the preacher that is too sorry to take a stand because he doesn't want the scorn and the slander and the criticism, so he compromises to get the heat off of his ministry. I'd much rather have the heat from the world and the hand of God on what I'm trying to do for the work of God than to be welcomed by this place. It's going to hell anyway. I'd just rather stand for Jesus, preach the Bible, love on sinners, take the fiery darts if I have to, wear the bullseye for the devil. That's okay. Must Jesus bear the cross over? Alone and all the world go free? No, there's a cross for everyone and there's a cross for me. Must I be carried to the sky on flowery beds of ease while others fight to win the prize and sail through bloody seas? Can I say if we do a work for God, it's gonna take more than that brand of Christianity that wears their rubber, J- uh, jump- uh, what would Jesus do? Bracelet on their wrist and their cross t-shirt and walks around like a hipster for God? No, it's gonna take an old fashioned Christian like Paul or Stephen or Peter or others that endured, that pressed on, that finished their course with joy. Can I say it's gonna come? The slander's gonna come. The lies are gonna come. The spin is gonna come. The fight is gonna come. But that's not why we're here. We're not here for the conflict. We're here for construction. There's a wall to build. There's a will of God to do. There's a work to get done. And let's just press on and build the wall. I like what he says. No person with half a brain looks for a fight, by the way. But if you have a church, you're gonna have a fight. If you have a bus route, you're gonna have a fight. If you have a Sunday school class, you're gonna have a fight. If you have a Christian school, right? Gonna have a fight. If you have a college, you're gonna have a fight. Now, no person looks for a fight. There's nothing within me whatsoever that likes drama. If you want to get knocked off my buddy list, be a drama mama. I do not care for that whatsoever. I don't care for conflict. I lose sleep over it at night. If I thought I said something that hurt you, you might not even think about it. It might not even have affected you. But if I think it did, I hate to, I'll lose sleep over it. I don't like it. But I do say this. I am called to earnestly contend for the faith. I am called to war a good warfare. I am called to endure and be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Now if I had my way, we'd sail through life. we just love each other. We'd all just live for the Lord. we just serve God and help people. We wouldn't come to church with pride or petty differences or trying to politic for a private agenda or some position. we just come to see Jesus. We wouldn't come to gossip. we just come for God. If I had my way, we just preach on Jesus and win the world to Christ. we just have revival in every service until Jesus came back in the rapture. If I had my way, the world would be grateful that we're here. They wouldn't be trying to shut us out. They'd be trying to help us get in. i I'd say if I had my way, they'd fake, say thank you. When the preacher preaches morality, they'd say thank you for upholding righteousness. They'd applaud the fact that we salvage broken lives and citizens of our city. I mean, if I had my way, there wouldn't be any lying. There wouldn't be any slander. There wouldn't be any gossip. There wouldn't be any secret societies that want to cut down the man of God. If I had my way, I'd much rather carry an olive branch than swing a sword. But the truth of it is this, that's not gonna happen while we live in this world. We live in a world today that is absolutely anti-God and we are soldiers in enemy territory and every day we're gonna face opposition. We have a devil that hates our guts and we're gonna face opposition. The devil has his disciples and we're gonna face opposition. I wish I could preach and everybody would say amen. I wish we could win souls and everybody say amen. I wish we could have a Christian school and everybody say amen. I wish we could have an old-fashioned church and everybody would say amen. I wish we could just preach and live a Christian life and not have any sticks and stones thrown our way. But that's not the case. That's why the songwriter said, onward, Christian soldier, marching as to war. That's why Paul said in Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God. And that tells me if we have to have armor, then we must be in a battle. In 1 Corinthians, Paul said the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Sticks and stones are part of wall building. If you don't want to fight, then go find a dead church. If you don't want criticism, then go join a dead church. If you don't want to take a stand, go someplace where they don't take one. But I'd rather have the hand of God and the blessings of God and endure the sticks and stones so that we might build the wall. I believe, and I'll finish, I believe a lot of Christians have fallen out. It's not because they disagree with the doctrine, but it's because they could not balance the warfare with the work. When I first got saved and got into the ministry, all I knew about it was what I read about in the books printed by the sword of the Lord. And most of those books just talk about how many people came and got saved, how these preachers ran 6,000 on Wednesday night, how folks wrote songs, and everybody sung their gospel songs. There wasn't a whole lot in there about the fact people might not like you. I can still remember the moment. I remember where I was, it was, I remember I was in a trailer in Newport, North Carolina, preaching for Brother Clyde Eber and FBN Radio. I was 23, I think, years old. Des was with me. And somebody sent me a text message and said, have you seen this article yet? By the way, you do not help your pastor or me when you send us an article about somebody making fun or slandering us. That does not encourage me at all. I don't, like, print that out and put it on my office wall next to your picture for Idiot of the Month. I'm just kidding, but anyway. In, in the love of God. But anyhow. But I remember, thank you back there, I remember that somebody sent me that and I looked and I couldn't believe it. There was a whole forum. And I was a 23-year-old preacher. I didn't have a dad that was a preacher, a Bible college <coughs> that sent me out. I was just trying to serve Jesus and I had, a, I had a long thread and it was all negative. One person said they had to play his preaching at Guantanamo Bay. To torture the terrorists. And I'll be honest with you, I kind of thought I'm for that if they won't play it there. It's better than his church people having to sit and listen to his and get tortured in their services. Amen right there. One female popped up on there. I was going to say lady, but the Holy Spirit wouldn't let, let me. One, one female popped up on there and said, I hate him. He comes to our church every year. I thought, well, that's a blessing. I preach to their church every year. Two years I've been in event both times, and she just said, "Flat, I hate him." That opened my eyes to the fact that the world does not celebrate a Bible-believing Christian. And by the way, backslidden Christians don't either. And by the way, some of the folks you go to church with don't really either. And I think a lot of Christians have fallen out because they did not expect the sticks and stones. They thought everybody's going to love me. Everybody's- why wouldn't you? I'm just trying to serve Jesus. Can I say, if they hated him, they're going to hate you. Jesus said in the book of John chapter 15, I think it's verse 21 or so, it's in the Bible. He said, they hated me without cause. How could you hate Jesus? We should go around right now. I'll come down there, take the lapel, and one by one, we'll stand up. We'll start, Brother Rasty, give me one reason you hate Jesus. I give me one reason you hate Jesus, right? What does that ask you? Brother Moats, no, he might give me a reason. But we'll ask you one reason why you hate Jesus. There's no reason, no cause to hate him. But they hated him because he wanted to do a work for God. Just understand this. When we set out to rebuild these walls, there's going to be opposition. But that's okay. Don't turn flies into eagles. Don't turn kittens into lions. Don't turn skunks into dinosaurs. Say amen right there. Nehemiah did not let the critics set the agenda. He let the will of God set the agenda. And he said, so built we the wall. Here's what Winston Churchill said, you have enemies, good. That means you've stood up for something sometime in your life. If everybody loves you, then I question the sincerity of your Christianity because this world is not our home and we're just a passing through.
0: Thank you for listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. For more information about our ministry or to find out how to get in contact with us,